Thanks for tuning in today. Please visit NemoursWellBeyond.org to catch all our episodes and sign up for our monthly newsletter. You can also use the voicemail feature on the website to leave a message with your episode ideas or questions. You just might be featured on an upcoming episode of the show. Without further ado, let's go. Well Beyond Medicine. Welcome to Well Beyond Medicine, the Nemours Children's Health Podcast. Each week, we'll explore anything and everything related to the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. I'm your host, Carol Vassar, and now that you're here, let's go. Let's go, oh, oh, well beyond medicine. Seemingly everywhere we turn these days, we're hearing about artificial intelligence, AI, and healthcare is no exception. In fact, it appears that healthcare and medicine are at the beginning stages of an all encompassing AI revolution. Let's set the stage about what AI and healthcare and medicine is with two experts from Nemours Children's Health pediatric cardiologist Dr. Deviani Chowdhury and Dr. Shubika Shravastava, co director of the Nemours Children's Health Cardiac Center and chief of cardiology for Nemours Children's Health, Delaware. So for the purposes of our discussion, how is artificial intelligence defined in the healthcare space? Here's Dr. Shubika Shravastava. Artificial intelligence is actually a transformative technology, and it has a potential to revolutionize patient care, diagnosis, and management. And it also has a potential to change the course of healthcare utilization, healthcare access, and patient outcomes. Would you consider this something of a revolution? It's been a revolution in the making for a long time. So it's been coming, and now it seems like it's here, but there's still so much that is about to happen with regard to AI. Um, how are AI technologies right now being applied to healthcare generally and specifically in the area of pediatric cardiac care? Dr. Chowdhury. So I think AI, as uh, Shubhi mentioned, has been around for a very long time. It's not anything new, but I think we've advanced a lot in our technology that AI is coming home to healthcare. Healthcare is usually the last industry to be impacted whenever anything new happens, you know. So I think AI is impacting us in day-to-day life, which all of us know. But in our day-to-day healthcare, I think it has a major impact. And specific to congenital heart disease, I think we don't even realize actually AI is kicking in and AI is actually happening and we don't even recognize that. For example, when we are reading an echocardiogram, a lot of the measurements are now on auto-measurement. So where does the auto-measurement come from? That's an AI-based tool that's coming up. EMR, a lot of the stuff in the EMR that is happening. We do all these searches for patients, a lot of that. A lot of that is AI-driven because this big data that's coming in is now got a sort of a supercomputer to analyze things, you know. I think one of the big things that AI may be able to do for us, as Shubhi mentioned, is access to care with a shortage of workforce is equity. So we can talk about that, I guess, separately. But I do think there is a huge potential for AI 
to advance our field and to make us better at what we are doing and improve patient outcomes. And by EMR, you mean electronic Electronic medical records, of course. So in terms of research, there's a lot of research for AI and specifically in cardiology. What's happening in that world? The AI research is actually happening in every aspect of cardiology. It's happening in the community level space, happening at outpatient space, inpatient space, echocardiography, ICU. So everywhere there is AI, and the question is at what level are you looking at AI? Do you call AI and machine learning when you're developing predictive algorithms, right? So predictive algorithms are coming out everywhere. Who is the sicker patient in the ICU who needs more care? Which echo doesn't look normal? Which fetal echo is abnormal? So these are all predictive analytics that are coming out from our existing data. So that is a lot of AI. Then the other question becomes is how do we implement some of this AI to make things better? First, we have to learn that is AI as good as the humans, right? So that's the first thing we are trying to figure out. Does AI add anything to this? Does it make us better in any way? Does it make us more efficient? Does it bridge a gap of workforce training that we don't have? Like we have a huge shortage of nurses. We put an AI algorithm in the ICU. Will that help a new nurse recognize a patient acuity better rather than having a 10-year experience? So that's one space we are trying to see. But a lot of the AI is still in um, research space. A lot of the algorithms haven't been validated. But I personally feel like, because of my area where I work, I think at a community level, AI is going to be most meaningful to people who don't even use technology. People without technology will benefit the most from this advanced technology. Is it possible that people won't even know this is happening? It's sort of behind the scenes. Patients and families themselves might not even know AI is being applied. Yes, they will not know because I can give you an example of this, uh, this paper that I just presented this morning. So we are looking at, in a slum in Pakistan, we have a slum. So these people are not even educated, right? Barely even read and write. And we are using AI in that population to detect which baby is going to die within the first month of life. These women who are delivering babies, we are using AI to predict which woman's going to have a baby that is not going to be alive, is going to have a stillbirth? Which woman's going to have a baby that is going to be small for gestational age? Because these small for gestational age babies are high risk. So the mother who comes in for an ultrasound or when we go to the house and do a pulse oximeter, they have no idea that we are using AI to make their lives better. But in reality, we are trying to improve access to care for that population. Because just think about it. There are millions and millions of babies born with congenital heart disease every day, right? 90% of that population lives outside the United States. Even in United States, we have a huge workforce shortage where it is everybody claims we have too many people taking care of a smaller number of patients. So for us to catch up with that workforce isn't going to happen that easily, right? We are not going to be able to train 50 million doctors in one day to take care of these children. So the population is what it is. Their education is what it is. So our job is to make that community health worker or that ASHA worker who's not even eighth grade educated, to give them the same expertise that a pediatric cardiologist sitting in Wilmington, Delaware, can say this baby is not going to do well. 
How do you do that? How do you give that baby that same chance of survival that you give a baby in America? Like I say, the future of a child should not be decided by geographical lines that are created by humans on a globe. So AI, I think, has that potential, and you're absolutely right. Like my Amish patients, we use AI, we use the pulse oximetry on them. They don't know I'm using AI to decide who's going to live or die, right? That's amazing stuff. That's absolutely. And it's certainly global and it's it's culturally appropriate. And I want to ask Dr. Shavastava, at Nemours, what kind of research is going into AI and how are we using AI every day with patients right now? I would like to take a step back and talk about the utilization of AI in access and medical decision making. Sure. And that is integral to not only patient diagnosis, but outcomes, and really ensuring lifelong commitment to the patient's care and quality of life. This requires, really, as Dr. Chaudhry mentioned, application of data that you get from resources all around you to see how that data can be applied to a particular patient. Let me give you an example. We all went through COVID, where access to care was crucial. And as you all know, NEMORS covers almost eight states and areas uh, where patients do not have direct access to care. And it's really important to use the information that we've learned from COVID, where access to care for certain patients was so limited, to see how we could apply that going forward to make sure we can get the best access to each and every patient. So can AI be applied to overcome the barrier of access? Is that sort of what I'm hearing you say? So what AI is basically, it's a technology and that will allow you to infer from data what is the right appropriate targeted use of that technology for that patient or that patient population. Let's take an example. Since we are talking about, as Dr. Chaudhry mentioned, care for children with cardiac disease. And Dr. Chaudhry has done tremendous work at a global level and in the Lancaster area where the Amish community does not have access to global health. And she's utilized technology that can be available and accessible to them. What about going a step forward and saying, can a patient who is 200 miles away from a facility that provides an echocardiogram get the same diagnostic care and get medical management if diagnosis is made? How can that happen? You don't have a specialized pediatric cardiologist or a cardiac sonographer available beyond very few subspecialty sites. So this is where we really rely on partnering with industry, where they can use equipment that even if it's held by a layman in their hand, can guide that layperson to apply the probe or the camera on a patient's chest to take the pictures that can be transmitted to a central reading station for a person to make the diagnosis. 
And I can tell you, we are using this instrumental technology that has been guided by AI-driven data algorithms to prevent sudden cardiac death in AEDs, right? We have AEDs in every field, or we hope, in every school and every place. And it guides you. It tells you when a person has collapsed. When you open that instrument, it tells you where to put the pads, how to use the equipment, right? You don't have to be a medical specialist to use that equipment. So we are hoping, just like Dr. Chaudhry mentioned, that we can get developed those tools by partnering, using our medical intellect, identifying the need, working with industry, working with engineers, working with mathematicians who develop these algorithms and statisticians and data analysts. You need a whole team of people to get there and achieve the best patient outcomes and care. And Nemours has started that journey. You started that journey. How far along are we on that journey? We have a long way to go. Okay. We'll be, That's we'll, fair. We'll get there. That's absolutely fair. Dr. Chowdhury. I just want to add a comment to what Dr. Shivastava said. So one place I know in Nemours also, we are using AI quite a bit, or AI-based methodologies for rhythm management. So we have our patients at home who, like I, we have a mutual patient from Nemours who actually has gone, the family's moved for a mission trip to Amazon. And this patient had ablation of the heart rhythm done by Dr. Temple at Nemours Cardiac Center. Dr. Temple came to me and said, I think this kid needs blah, blah, blah. Needs I need to check an EKG in a month. I said, geez, he's going to be in the Amazon. I talked to this family. They are going to be living up the river. When they come to the base camp, they have access to the satellite phone. In that satellite phone, so we got them this device. They carried that with them. So they come to the base. They take that picture. Through that satellite phone, they are texting that to me, which I text to Dr. Temple and say, hey, the kid's doing okay. So this is what we are doing. We have another patient in Burma like this who has SVT. Mom, we send the kid home. We, we couldn't capture the rhythm while the child was here. The family had to go on a mission trip. Talk to Dr. Temple, said, yes, let's give them a prescription of atenolol. Don't have them take it. When the child goes into a rhythm, tell the mom to record. She did. Sent it to Dr. Temple. He says, yeah, you're okay to put her on atenolol. Put that kid on atenolol. Kid's fine. When they come to the U.S., we will take care of them, you know. This is AI-driven algorithms that are allowing us to take care of these patients. And then once we start these kids on meds, I tell them, send me another tracing. They do. I have another kid at home who's an Amish kid, doesn't want to come in because it costs a lot of money. We got them this, got the church to give us permission to have a smartphone only for the ECG. So they do that ECG, send it to us every two weeks, which I send to Dr. Temple, and he takes a look at it. You're really changing the face of healthcare delivery. Right, but these are people, right? So the Amish community doesn't even have a smartphone, right? right? What do they know about AI? But we say, you want to save money, get this family a smartphone, buy a $70 device, and just send us the ECG on that. That's all the device will be used for. They will not serve. Culturally appropriate. You follow your rules, but you can still use technology. They don't have electricity at home, but they can do this. I want to ask if there are any downsides. This sounds like high in the sky, all is well, sunshine and roses. Are there any downsides to AI? Dr. Shavastava. 
That's an excellent question, talking about downsides to AI. So as we mentioned, AI is a data-driven inferred technology. So the data, the quality of the data that needs to go in has to be really good. And that is determined by a human mind. So I'm sure the next question is going to be, will AI ever replace a human? I think not yet, and hopefully never. But AI algorithm that can capture disease process, like for cancer therapeutics and medical imaging, AI technology now can pick up brain tumors, can pick up breast cancer, even in the remotest of areas where a specialist is not there. We want that technology to be applied to every child with congenital heart disease. To get there, to be able to detect disease, it'll require input of a large data set. We all know that even looking at United States, looking at even Delaware, the diversity of the population is immense. What works for one population subset may not work for another. So it's really important to apply that data-derived algorithm across a larger population subset and keep testing it. And that's where the limitations come through, is access to data, preserving patient identity and privacy. And that's why, as I said earlier, our journey has just started. We have a long way to go. So we have the tools, we have the communication tools to transmit information. But are we there where the tool itself, like for that patient, and uh, as Dr. Chaudhry mentioned, would not have needed Dr. Chaudhry or Dr. Temple? Wherever they were, if they had put that machine on them, they would say that machine would have told them, not good, go to the nearest hospital, or you're okay, keep moving. So I think... It's a long journey. We need data. We need rules and guidelines to help us move forward as a community. And really, most importantly, collaborate. We cannot cannot individually, single-handedly take on this task without collaborating across the fields. I think the other trap with the AI is that AI is available to everybody, right? So the industry makes a machine, everybody can see it, right? We get plenty of patients referred to us because the Apple Watch picked something, and you get a panicky call in the middle of the night. So, so that's where we need data to be, AI to be supervised. So these patients are showing up in the ER, urgently showing up in our office, because that machine read something and people don't realize, as Dr. Shivastava said, what data went in to make that algorithm. That data was for AFib in adults, not for children trying to figure out other kinds of rhythms. So that's one of the big traps of AI. And the other thing to really, just to elaborate what Dr. Shivastava said about population, right? So AI can create bias, okay? So that has been shown in many studies. The moment you put ethnicity of the patient in, you'll say, okay, this population is at risk for this, but then you're already introducing a bias into that, right? So for AI algorithms to work, it's really important 
that there is smart, thoughtful people who actually pick the right things to put in, and then the algorithm that works in your population should be tested in another population for geographical validation. Geographical validation of an AI algorithm is a must, you know, like for anything else, right? We cannot cross-translate. So as much as we want to collaborate and bring data together, we also need to give people contextual geographical validation. Otherwise, we are going to create the same problems we did. We want to parachute down in West Africa and teach them how to do something. That's not how that works. One of the questions that I have is, are we behind in terms of public policy and regulatory frameworks when it comes to AI? It's like with anything else, right? Because we had no idea the scope of this technology when it started, right? So it moved so fast. Now people are realizing there are a lot of ethical issues. So there was this big paper in Lancet that just came out how AI can actually cause colonization again, right? Because the data lives in the lower middle-income countries. High-income countries want that data to develop their algorithms. But at the same time, you're not looking at the end user over there. So like language, for example, is a big part of colonization. So we want to reverse that, right? So AI can help solve that problem of colonization because if you have a person who lives in Senegal and speaks their local language, AI should be able to talk that so that it doesn't just become a proprietary of the English-speaking high-income countries. You know. So I think the whole world is now looking at the ethics of that, right? Now, same thing with data that Dr. Shivastava said. You have to be very careful with data. Now, countries are becoming very careful with data, okay? Like institutions in the U.S. are becoming very careful. As much as we want collaboration, Nemours doesn't want to give the data to Boston or to Cincinnati and say, hey, take our data and do this, right? We want to have some control on our data, right? So you want to do federated data. So the cloud space is now being controlled internationally. That's one way for policy, right? So data coming out, say, from India or Pakistan, the government does not allow you to put that data on a U.S. Amazon cloud. You know. Got to have that data within their confines of their law. So every country is doing that, and it is coming up internationally to do that. And I do think that AI algorithms are now being looked at to avoid bias. So mathematicians are coming out with adding something on the top so you don't have bias in your data. So yes, it is working, and I do think the community is very sensitive to it. I wouldn't say people are not sensitive to it. Yes, it is moving. One piece is moving faster than the other. And as policy and regulations take a long time, much longer than trying to say, hey, my Apple Watch is showing a high heart rate, you know. So Dr. Shivastava answered the question about will this ever replace humans, AI ever replace humans. What's your thought on that, Dr. Chowdhury? So I want to give an example of that, right? So we've talked a lot about AI detecting high-risk patients and doing this and that. So my thought is that as humans, and we know that, like we have a sixth sense, so to say, right? There are things that machine cannot pick up. Like Dr. Shivasta with, with her 30 years of cardiology experience will see a baby from six feet away and say, something's not right. That's it, Right? which the computer may not pick up, which something else may not pick up, a fellow may not pick up. So that experience and that can never be replaced by a machine. 
because we do not know how to objectify that data in a mathematical equation, you know. We just can't do it. We can't have the machine understand the emotion of love or, or a feeling, right? So that we are very far from. We are just looking at very data objectively, right? But the human brain and the doctors especially have this experience, right? Where does that experience come from? It's learned behavior in a certain way. So that will never go away from medicine. But I do think one of the things I feel that's why the AI, when it is practically implemented in a population, in a, at least, like, again, I said my experience is global health. So say I have a population of I'm working in a slum and I need to find out which baby is going to die at one month of age, right? There are going to be some things that are going to be obvious to us. Baby doesn't look great. We're not going to rely on an AI algorithm to tell us whether this baby looks great or not, okay? That's obvious. We take those babies out. So AI will help us in the rest of the population and say, hey, based on the AI calculation, there are these 25% of these babies are probably at high risk. We don't need to bring all those 25% in, but we keep a closer watch on them. It alerts us, you know. If this baby from this cohort comes, we know the AI had alerted us. We need to be looking at that baby more carefully. So I think the way ML eventually is going to work in our day-to-day -day life is going to be what we call a sequential MI, you know. Same thing when we look at pregnant women. If somebody has lost three babies and has all these complications, who cares what AI says? We're going to give that woman the care she needs. So the challenge becomes the ones we don't detect that obviously, then the AI alerts us, but it still comes back to us to pick up those patients. So that's the part the AI is going to do. So like I was giving an example this morning, we have these really complex single ventricle patients. Everybody is going to watch those patients. And we know if they move a hair, there are five experienced nurses or a doctor. But we have a less complicated patient sitting in a corner, right? We don't expect a problem then something happens. But the AI says patient A with the simple surgery versus patient B with the simple surgery. B is at higher risk, which we did not think about. Or we thought the other way and we thought everybody is at risk. So resource allocation isn't appropriate. So what the AI can really do is identify the at-risk population for us for better resource allocation. But then how that risk translates into outcome is still dependent on us, you know. AI can do that part for us, but it can make our life easier, right? So we don't, don't, don't need to train 500 nurses to pick that. AI can help us. So the human element will always be always. there and needs to be there. Yes. Dr. Shavastava, I want to know, how does researching AI, incorporating it into clinical care, and also the business side of our work here in healthcare, here in Nemours, how does that speak to the idea of well beyond medicine? That's an excellent question. Every idea has to start with a small project. And then you have to get that data and validate it, make sure it's feasible, then apply it to the larger population, then test it, validate it, and apply. So that initial small idea that started the project is what we call research. Then we use that knowledge and the results from that initial testing, and then keep applying and keep applying till it actually can be put to clinical use and has been tested multiple times. At Nemours, we have a very large health record database. We can utilize that database and 
every patient data, including their neighborhood index, including their genetic data, if we have access to it, their clinical data, the environmental data based on their geographic location, and identify how that patient population does for that specific disease. So let's say it's for congenital heart disease. We can look at the patient population as a whole and see which patient population can require more intense therapy down the road or is at risk compared to another population that's not. And we can start within NEMORS to look at our own population, but to make it clinically usable and viable, I think it will take us a lot more time to make sure that we can meet our target and goal of well beyond medicine. Another thing Nemours is doing is a medical home and using wearable devices to see how we can monitor patients in their environment and provide care in an environment that's natural to them and decrease hospital readmissions, but also make sure that being taken care at home does not impact their survival. And secondly, if they are not doing well, to seek timely care. So that journey has already started. And Nemours has invested in great experts and thought leaders in that field to help us get to our vision of well beyond medicine. If I'm hearing you correctly, it is reaching populations that we hadn't reached before based on use of data and also intervening earlier with children who may be critically ill at home and intervening and preventing readmissions, which is a, a huge goal for every hospital and every healthcare system. Am I right on that? Absolutely right. Excellent. Dr. Chowdhury. I really have to actually go back to my community work, okay? So I have to say how NEMORS goes well beyond medicine, okay? I guess technology definitely plays into it. It's not truly an AI ML algorithm as such, but well beyond medicine. That's the topic I'm addressing. So I started working with Nemours 15 years ago. We had this Amish community which does not use any technology. They had babies who would come to the hospital or they would die at home. We worked with the Nemours team, and there is a special condition called Ellis von Krivold syndrome. And a lot of these babies have lung disease, and sometimes they're required to be on a ventilator for months or years. So that means being home on a ventilator with electricity, which again is not something that community would support, plus having nursing care. So how did we go well beyond medicine? We figured out a way to run the ventilators on gas generators. We figured out a way to bring young Amish girls into Nemours to train them to take care of these vented patients, so they were, they're not nurses, they're eighth grade educated, but just like a parent. We can train a parent to take care of a ventilated patient, we did. Recently, we had two patients that we are running the ventilators on solar panel. That has never been done before, because solar panel is accepted to them, right? So is this well beyond medicine? Which institution would think about this? So we have these kids now at home on solar panels, 
for a community that has no running water, no electricity, but we are providing care. We do house calls, we take a little portable machine, and we take care of these children. And we have several patients like this, and they live, and they are fine by the time they go to school. They go to school, just like any other child. Well Beyond Medicine. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nemours Well Beyond Medicine podcast with me, Carol Vassar, and our guests, pediatric cardiologist Dr. Deviani Chowdhury and Dr. Shabika Shravastava, co-director of the Nemours Children's Health Cardiac Center and chief of cardiology for Nemours Children's Health Delaware. Have a question or comment about artificial intelligence and healthcare? Leave us a voicemail at nemoreswellbeyond.org. That's nemoreswellbeyond.org, where you'll also find all of our previous podcast episodes, including every podcast in the AI series. Thanks to our production team, Jay Parker, Cheryl Munn, and Allison Misich. Until next time, remember, we can change children's health for good, well beyond medicine. Let's go, oh, oh, well beyond medicine.